From 2003 to 2006, teens and young adults were locked into Comedy Central's runaway hit, Chappelle's Show. The sketch comedy show spent a huge amount of its short 22-minute runtime poking fun at racial issues, including sketches which saw a blind black man leading the KKK, a racial draft brawl by multiracial celebrities, and a negative take on what would happen if African Americans received long sought-after reparations for slavery. Despite its immense popularity, Dave Chappelle, the creator and host, departed the show during the third season in order to deal with the anxiety that had come with having the most popular show in the world. The social commentary that underwrites the comedic performance is immensely valuable. Few can see past Chappelle's extensive overuse of a bleeped-out racial slur, something that he has claimed to have come to regret in lengthy interviews on the subject. Still, there are a few skits that broke through to the wider world. Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood stories were one such delightful look at the behind-the-scenes world of celebrity. Charlie was the younger brother of Eddie Murphy, a comedian and actor who was perhaps the biggest star in the world during the 1980s. Rather than focusing on the actor, the skit purely looks at the celebrity's entourage who spent the night out with Rick James. Charlie and Rick both trade off narration duties, while Chappelle acts out the story for the audience. I wouldn't do the skit justice if I attempted to act it out, but it involves a crazy night out that results in everyone involved claiming that cocaine is a hell of a drug. In the second iteration of True Hollywood Stories, Charlie Murphy claims that Prince and his entourage destroyed Murphy's group in basketball, despite being in their club clothes from the night before resulting in the final line of Game Blouses. Charlie ends the story by showing that he understands the audience's disbelief, with another writer from the show asking, all right, he beat you in basketball, and then what happened? To which Murphy incredibly replies, after it was all over, he took us in the house and served us pancakes. Pancakes? I mean, you know, there's some great storytellers in the world that we live in today, man. But who can make that craziness up? Great storytellers are regularly accused of taking liberties with their tale in order to make it more sellable to the wider public. After all, what is the point of telling a story if no one wants to listen to it? Our inability to interrogate the storyteller of long-ago primary documents creates limitations for historians. As we are never sure to what extent they are exaggerating their tale, or if they have fallen for the propaganda of the age. These are questions that all apply to Marco Polo, whose travels would have made an excellent true Hollywood story. Marco Polo had lived a life like no one else. For 17 years, half of his life, he had served as a confidant for Kublai Khan. He was one of the only Europeans in the nation of China, Surely he was the only one in a privileged position. He had access to a piazza, which functioned as a credit card with no limit. He spent time on party boats in Hangzhou and interacted with cultures that believed experience counted for their women, resulting in them wearing tokens for every sexual partner that they had been with. Although he doesn't kiss and tell, 
Marco wrote that he highly recommends a visit for anyone between the ages of 16 and 24. To paraphrase the late, great Charlie Murphy, who can make that bleep up? Counting time travel, Marco Polo had been away from Venice for 24 years. Now approaching 40, he had to return home to a land which had long since forgotten him. Money in the form of luxurious gems that the travelers had sewn into their clothing did the trick ensuring their resurrection. But there is little known about what the three travelers did upon their immediate return. Historian John Mann, our main source for this series, simply states that undoubtedly the Polos arrived with startling wealth and resumed their life in Venice as respected citizens, and Marco became famous for his stories, and so acquired the name Milion. But that name wasn't complimentary. Long before he wrote down his travel log, the Venetian would have discussed his adventures. His tendency to throw out exaggerated numbers, including 1,000, 300,000, and of course a million, resulted in the insulting moniker of Million. Like Odysseus's explanation for why he returned home so late from the Trojan War, Marco's tale had far too many twists and turns to be believed. They spoke a foreign language and stood out for their penchant to wear Mongolian clothing. They were more curiosities than authorities. Yet they had one piece of collaborating evidence that no one could argue with. That was their extensive collection of jewels. For money speaks. They had such a collection that Marco's uncle had to desperately hunt down a beggar to whom his wife had donated some of his ragged old Mongolian clothing. Apparently, she hadn't realized that a fortune remained hidden within the garment's folds. Likely, Marco had accrued such wealth that he never needed to publish a book. But it was ultimately his decision to publish it that made him famous. Keep in mind that although Marco may have been the first European to experience the wonders that was Myanmar and Vietnam, he hadn't been the one to discover the Yuan dynasty. His father, uncle, as well as a host of others had all made a similar excursion along the Silk Road. Franciscan John of Paolo Carpini was sent by order of the Pope in 1245, and thus would have had far more credibility than a Venetian boy whom the Khan had supposedly taken a liking to. Carpini's mission occurred eight years earlier than Niccolo Polo's first travels. The religious pipeline continued between the East and West, with John of Montecorvino baptizing 20,000 Chinese while serving as a Roman Catholic bishop in Beijing. His work began two years after Marco's departure from the Khan's court, six years before Marco's life story was published in the travels. So why is Polo's account the one that attracts all the attention? The answer to that question explains why so many people question whether Marco ever went to China in the first place. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. 
This series focuses upon the intertwined legacies of Venetian explorer Marco Polo and the Chinese emperor Kublai Khan. Episode number four, True Hollywood Stories. The Polos had escaped the frying pan into the fire. They returned home to Venice in 1295, which for the better part of a year had been engaged in a war with the rival trading state of Genoa. The conflict would become known as the Second Venetian Genoese War and would last until 1299. The nation of Croatia maintains an extensive record regarding the conflict, as many of the battles played out just off of its shores. Their government showcases the violence that occurred, noting that the climax of that war came when the Venetian admirals Ruggio Morosini Malabranco and Giovanni Soranzo sailed towards the port of Constantinople with the intent of destroying the Genoese ward pier, which they did. Morosini in the Golden Horn lowered his anchor demonstrably in front of the imperial palace. They ravaged and burned down the important Genoese plant of Alon on the Anatolian coast. Thus, they endangered the significant trade of Alon, important for the production of colors as they broke the chains of the slave trade and endangered the Genoese sea routes. The Genoese and the Greeks replied by massacring the Venetians in Constantinople, and they even killed the president of the Genoese colony, throwing him down from the roof of his house. The hatred between the Venetians and the Genoese was made into verses of ridicule, intolerance, and vengeance, which echoed on board both fleets. First world residents of the 21st century can typically avoid the sacrifices that are supposed to come with war. My own nation, America, had an ongoing declared war from 2001 to 2023. Despite the sacrifices of our servicemen, service women, and their families, the vast majority of Americans paid scant attention to the daily ongoings of the War on Terror. That wasn't just a product of fatigue either, as only 17% of American youth could locate Afghanistan on a map in the year following Osama bin Laden's horrific September 11th attacks. New York Representative Charles Rangel believes that the ability of the wealthy and powerful to ignore the consequences of war have contributed to our war-mongering ways. Each year, he attempts to reinstate the military draft. His logic is that if the kids of congressmen could be drafted, then they might think twice before declaring a war. Marco wasn't afforded such a luxury, however as it was customary in Venice for wealthy merchants to directly finance their nation's war. It was a tradition that went back to the founding of the city-state. Historian Ernest Abel details for us the events that led to the rise of the Adriatic power, noting that it began accidentally. All marriages in Venice used to take place on February 1st, a date that the entire city would pause in order to collectively celebrate with feasting. And in 945 AD, it had already become customary for the guests to bring luxurious presents. A clever group of pirates knew of the custom, 
and after the entire city's hearts filled with happiness and their stomachs were loaded up with booze, the pirates swooped in. A bell highlights the criminals' thinking by writing that the men would be too drunk to offer much resistance, and the women would both satisfy their lustful appetites and bring a bountiful ransom. The plan worked, at least initially. But the tipsy grooms managed to sober themselves up, and soon the whole city had risen in the defense of its honor, with men from every quarter rushing to the port, swearing revenge upon the intruders. The leader of Venice, the Doge himself, led the mission. Abel writes that the Venetian ship skimmed over the waves, not an inch of canvas was left unfurled. Not only was the virtue of their women at stake, the honor of Venice itself had been besmirched. They quickly closed the gap with their assailants, and an hour-long battle ensued from which the Venetians emerged victorious. Sixty-five years later, on the same day that the original assault had occurred, the Venetian doge assembled all of the fighting men in the city and sailed throughout the Adriatic with the expressed purpose of punishing any city which had given the pirates refuge. No longer would anyone dare to threaten Venetian shipping, Abel writes. Her enemies were no more. Venice was now the undisputed sovereign of the Adriatic and the Mediterranean. Although centuries had passed, the city-state turned empire had maintained the tradition that everyone is responsible for defending the honor of Venice. One might have imagined that the call to action was difficult for our main character. After all, Berkeley psychologists Paul Piff and Dotcher Keltner have found that the possession of wealth reduces one's ability to feel compassion for others. Additionally, Marco had spent the vast majority of his life in China, having to literally relearn his native language upon arriving home. Despite these facts, Marco didn't seem to skimp on the required tax, as his warship was one of the largest in the conflict, a two-masted beast that contained 120 oars as well as its own trebuchet. Polo served as a gentleman commander of the ship, partaking in at least one battle, during which he was captured and subsequently imprisoned. Like everything involving our intrepid explorer, the details regarding the event are murky, with some sources suggesting that he was captured as early as 1296, while others point to the decisive battle of Curzola in 1298 as the moment of his arrest. For the sake of lengthening this episode, let's assume that he was part of the Battle of Curzola. A storm had scattered the Genoese fleet, resulting in the Venetians having numerical superiority at the onset of the naval engagement. But those Genoese ships were built tougher than the hastily assembled Venetian fleet, whose initial gains were soon turned into a rout. Eighteen Venetian galleys were sunk, while 66, including perhaps Marco Polo's ship, were captured. It was a common practice to take prisoners during this war, as Genoa essentially ran the slave trade between Crimea and Egypt during this time period. 
the Battle of Curzola was a particularly lucrative engagement, as they had managed to take 7,000 new prisoners. Wealth creates differences for treatment, many of which the wealthy don't even understand. One of Piff and Keltner's studies was quite simple in its design. The psychologists asked their subjects to spend a few minutes comparing themselves to people who are either better or worse off than themselves financially. Afterwards, the participants were shown a jar of candy and told that they could take home as much as they wanted, but the leftover candy would be given to children in a nearby laboratory. Interestingly, the participants who chose to talk about how much better off they were took significantly more candy for themselves, depriving the fictional lab children from their sweet treats. It's not just that the wealthy treat others differently. For instance, Piff and Keltner also found that owners of luxury cars are far less likely to stop for individuals in the crosswalk but that they expect to be treated differently as well. In 1292, Marco's wealth saved him from enslavement, as he was earmarked for a ransom rather than sale. The double standard didn't end there, as Mann informs us that his prison was no dank dungeon, but some building where dignitaries could remain in reasonable comfort, or perhaps even a private house where he could be held under house arrest pending an exchange of prisoners. This was the moment where fate stepped in. In the room next to him happened to be a prisoner by the name of Rusticello. Little is known about Marco's cellmate, except for the fact that he was the author of Melodus, a collection of stories about Arthurian knights written in poetic French. Man sets the stage for us stating, so here we have a middle-aged hack writer almost dying of boredom without much of a future, and a talkative patrician with a fascinating past and a desire to write his story. Rusticello offered to act as Marco's ghost. The author himself, however, is nearly a ghost in the historical record. Mann tells us the scholars think that Rusticello was the writer behind both Melodus and Marco's book because they both begin with a very similar address to a noble audience. Lords, emperors, and princes, dukes, and counts, and barons, and knights, says Melodaus. Lords, emperors, and kings, dukes, and marquises, counts, and knights, says Marco's book. Linguistic coincidences continually pop up throughout the two works, allowing us to reasonably believe that we have properly detected the identity of Polo's ghostwriter. Over the course of the next seven months of their captivity, the two would work closely together in order to produce the travels. The circumstances of the book's creation provide ample fodder to explain the inconsistencies within the story. For one thing, Marco was forced to go largely off of his memory. Although his captors kindly allowed him to send for his notes, the Venetian was largely relying on his recollection regarding events that had occurred nearly three decades before. 
even with detailed notes which Marco likely didn't have, it's difficult to get everything right 30 years after the event. Secondly, Marco and Rusticello have different agendas. Marco wanted to give the objective, if selective, truth as geographer, explorer, businessman, Christian. Whereas Rusticello would be happy with marvels and good stories. In other words, there is a reason that former presidents don't have their memoirs ghostwritten by trashy romance novelists. Rusticello, like any author, wants the story to be read. For that, it needs to be interesting. Hence, a lot of the oddities within the work can be written off as mere romantic embellishments. Third, the speed at which they worked would ultimately prove to be detrimental to the overall product. Seven months isn't a long time to flesh out a story that spanned more than 30 years. The work contains a number of distracting transitions that begin with the phrase, Oh, I forgot to tell you. Written in quill and ink, the manuscript did not have the opportunity to go through a detailed proofing process. Fourth, it was told to Rusticello in Venetian, but written in French, which was considered at the time to be a higher or more poetic language. From there, the book would be reprinted by hand as the Gutenberg printing press remained 200 years in the future. About 150 copies of the work, all written in various languages, are known to have existed, including versions in Old French, Tuscan, Venetian, English, and Latin. No two early copies are exactly the same, and none are believed to be the original. For example, we have what amounts to two completely different versions of the book, each written in Latin. Both of those editions contain different versions of the same event, suggesting that the romantic flourishes continued to be added in with each new translation. Marco himself carried around copies of his book in case he managed to run into anyone important. His own obsession with the work led him to continue to add to the story years after Rusticello was done with it. Mann stresses that, Still, no one knows exactly what Marco dictated, or Rusticello wrote. That is the black hole at the center of Polo research, indefinitely attractive to scholars, invisible but sensed through its effects. In some versions, Marco claimed to have personally designed the siege engines that brought down the Song Dynasty of southern China. Yet other, far earlier versions correctly identified that the engineers had come from the Middle East to provide such deadly blueprints. There isn't even a definitive title for the work, with some versions adorned as The Travels, while others are titled The Description of the World. Still others simply use Marco's ill-begotten nickname for his work, Il Milione as there were those who believed that its pages were filled with a million lies. His time in captivity, which was far shorter than his ghostwriters, 
also meant that the book was far shorter than it could have been. On his deathbed, Marco stated that he had not written but a half of what he had seen. He never mentions the Great Wall, their love of tea, or Chinese foot binding. Not because he never saw it, but because he had to leave out something. Mann writes that the book in its various editions is between 60,000 words and 140,000. A good length today for a novel or a work of nonfiction on a restricted subject but hardly sufficient for 20 years of experience across half the globe, over unknown territory, into an unknown empire that was the world's richest and largest, and ruled by the world's most powerful man, plus the historical background. Today, such an experience would demand four books, The Land Journey Out, The Mongols and Their Court, The Land They Ruled, and The Sea Journey Home. All of these factors contribute to the realization that Marco Polo's book is far closer to a rough draft than a finished piece of art. Thus, Marco's description of dragons made the cut, which one imagines rushed to cello, urging its inclusion on the basis that no one will ever know and it will boost our bottom line. Also included were the stories that Marco had heard secondhand, some of which he directly points out in the book while others lack any accreditation. Even this isn't detrimental to the overall work. But then the reader stumbles upon a third grouping of what can only be described as fictitious tall tales. The stories in this collection are well known to be false in our world, but had been believed to be true in the 13th century. Take, for instance, the story of the rock, a bird which Marco claims was 30 paces across and so strong that it could seize an elephant in its talons and carry him high into the air, dropping him from such a height that the poor creature would be smashed to pieces. Perhaps sensing that no one would believe his account, Marco goes out of his way to note for the record that this isn't the legendary half-lion, half-bird known collectively as the griffin. The rock also was a creature which he wasn't able to view with his own eyes, only picking up the story second-hand. So where in Asia is this fabled elephant-carrying beast? Unfortunately, it is as extinct as the dodo, for man reveals to us that he likely is describing the Epidorus Maximus of Madagascar. The creature was the world's largest bird, and was colloquially known as the elephant bird, for its gargantuan size as it stood a full three meters tall and hit the scales at close to half a ton. By 1700, it had disappeared from this world after Europeans found their huge eggs quite delectable. And considering that they were 200 times the size of chicken eggs, they quickly harvest them to extinction. Stories like this are part of the reason that I, along with the vast majority of historians, believe that Marco Polo, by and large, did the things that he claimed to have done. For there is truth even in his most obvious falsehoods. The Venetian did have a flair for the dramatic, but by and large was known to have been an authentic and truthful individual. 
increasing his reputation as the fact that he was known to be quite cheap, requiring his family to pay interest on any loans from his personal funds. Negative traits like this helped to balance out the positives written into his biography, rounding him out as a real person rather than mythical creature. His sterling reputation for honesty within his post-travels business dealings helps to therefore shield his honor. We know for a fact that Marco went somewhere for 24 years and that he came back with more identifiable truths than any other European previously had. The falsehoods that are sprinkled in aren't enough to explain away how he knew all of the things that he was right about. Mann points out that much of the information he delivered was simply not available, except through personal experience. And then there is the independent evidence, like the Mongol words no one else could have known, the Chinese and Persian sources that back his account of the return journey, the tablets of authority brought home by the polos, the scores of obscure names that have now been identified, and his mention of Japan, the first and only one in the West until the 16th century. In fact, his accounts of China are far more accurate and detailed than other travelers' accounts of the period. Ibn Battua, one of the most famous and respected Muslim travel scholars in world history, confused the Yellow River with the Grand Canal and claimed that porcelain was made from coal. Still, others will point to the lack of evidence originating in China to confirm Polo's tale. But historian Stephen Hall notes that the Chinese record lacks mention of any European, including emissaries of the Pope. These accounts of China are universally accepted avoiding the high level of skepticism that Polos is met with. But perhaps that is because the Pope's men never claimed to have seen a fat gray unicorn. Il Milione was wrong about the rhino, but that is an honest mistake. It's a misunderstanding that makes the Venetian sound foolish, but not wrong. His willingness to get things incorrect showed that he had no incentive to lie. Marco Polo had come back from his adventures an extremely wealthy man. He had a high enough station in society to be obligated to raise his own funds for a warship. After finally being ransomed in 1299, he returned to Venice, got married in 1312, and had three daughters. Soon after, he gave up his Mongol clothing and settled in to live out his life as a European gentleman. He remained a traitor rather than a publicist, just handing over the book to a few influential politicians, after which he is hardly mentioned in the historical record. Thus, the most famous traveler in European history didn't seem to be chasing fame, just money. He inherited his uncle's vast fortune upon the man's death, as well as a wealthy half-brother who hadn't had children of his own. He lived out the rest of his life as a husband and father for 24 years, passing away at the tender age of 70. His death is yet another sign that he wasn't continuously seeking attention, as he was buried according to the wishes that were described within his will, placing him in a family tomb with no memorial. 
Although historians have the location of the church, the tomb has become lost or perhaps destroyed after the church was rebuilt centuries ago. Even if it weren't his wishes, Marco Polo became one of, if not the most famous explorers in world history. Christopher Columbus famously brought his copy of the travels with him on his voyage to the New World. We still have his copy of it, which contains copious annotations made while the explorer was imagining his chance to go on a similar adventure to the Orient. The glory of Venice's most famous explorer even managed to override nationality, as Columbus was himself a Genoese sailor. Columbus wasn't looking to discover two additional continents. Rather, he was looking for a quicker route to China. Once there, he planned to use Polo's descriptions of the cities and the Grand Canal in order to navigate the foreign country. Those descriptions did more than just whet the appetite of Europe's explorer class, as Marco's words showed Europe that it had quite a bit to learn from the Far East. Those cities were all said to have been meticulously clean, with straight, well-planned roads and ponds stocked with fish. The thoroughfares had sophisticated draining systems, along with manicured trees and lawns. They were also far safer than European population centers, as Marco described each one having thousands of centuries on regular patrol. Meanwhile, the independent digital magazine Undark tells us that 400 years later, slosh from chamber pots thrown from Paris's windows mixed with dirt in the city's unpaved streets to form a sulfurous-smelling stew. That's right. Given the choice, you would have much rather lived in a Chinese city than a European capital. Undark continues for us, a depiction of the streets of Paris, claiming that on Thursdays and Fridays, Parisians had no choice but to walk through inches of thickened blood that slaughterhouses tossed into streets with names like Cowfoot and Tripe, turning the mud in those neighborhoods permanently red. The website notes that the filth of Paris was inescapable. It attached itself ruthlessly to clothes, the sides of buildings, and the inside of nostrils. By perpetual motion, dirt is beaten into such a thick black oil that where it sticks, no art can wash it off. Besides the stain this dirt leaves, it gives off so strong a scent that it may be spelt many miles off. To Columbus, the land of China was only as real as which he had read about first and foremost in the travels. The Christian History Institute writes about the world that Columbus was educated by noting that in the ocean of darkness some feared the water boiled and sea monsters gulped down sailors so foolish as to sail there. Beyond, if they lived to see it, lay the fabled island of Sipengu, there, in the land of the great Khan, it was claimed that houses were roofed with gold and streets paved with marble. And this was but one of the 7,448 islands Marco Polo had said were in the Sea of China. The New World's European discoverer was so engrossed by the tale of Marco Polo 
that he carried with him a letter destined for the eyes of the great Kublai Khan on his voyage. Despite the fact that his journey was 200 years after Polo's, Columbus wasn't alone in his effort to emulate the Venetian. Countless numbers of merchants set off to China in search of the same riches, while mapmakers poured through his work to fill in gaps within their own works. Missionaries in particular took up the challenge as well after Marco had painted the Khan as ready to convert. The Venetian's credibility was enhanced by the fact that he maintained a company line throughout the work regarding his depiction of Islam, to which he never hesitated to describe it in a negative light. It turns out here that his European prejudices carrying over from the Crusades couldn't be pierced. Despite his reverence of the non-Christian people of China, he maintained a positive status within his own Christian faith. It was the church who inadvertently made Marco Polo a household name. Mann explains that Marco's resurrection as a guide to the real world was due to two factors. The first was the revival of learning in the first half of the 15th century. It was the church that kick-started the process, because Rome had an urgent desire to unite a Christendom long divided into East and West Roman and Orthodox, with other schismatics in control of Ethiopia. In 1439-43, to 43, a general council in Florence brought hundreds of churchmen together, among them an astrologer and physician named Paolo da Pozzol Toscanelli. At this conference, Toscanelli met a brilliant Byzantine scholar, Gestimus Pletho, who had somehow acquired a map that showed Norway, Iceland, and a part of Greenland, long forgotten if ever known in mainland Europe, but still remembered by Scandinavians as a Viking base from the 10th century. Also at the conference was one of the most brilliant men of his age, Nicholas of Cusa, who owned a copy of Marco's book. A few years later, the historian explains that Nicholas became a mentor to a Portuguese cleric named Fernão Martins, later a canon of Lisbon, an advisor to Portugal's King Alfonso V. A traveler called Niccolo Conti, who had spent 25 years in the East, though not in China, wrote up his own story in 1448, validating much of Marco's book. Incidentally, Nicholas of Cusa was also, I believe, a friend of Johannes Gutenberg. Now that was a ton of confusing name-dropping, but Mann does eventually get to the point, writing that here we have a number of significant elements all brought together. A desire to solve the problem of a divided Christendom. A map that showed land way out in the Atlantic. A man who took Marco seriously. Another man who could personally vouch for Marco. A sort of intellectual Freemasonry of scholars all in contact with each other. A king interested in exploration. These were the nerves which once the connections had been made would spark new ways of thinking about the world. How to understand it how to explore it, how to share knowledge about it, and how to control it. Consequently, it was this moment in time that the Turks overthrew the Byzantine Empire once and for all. The absence of the world's longest-running empire, which lasted an incredible 1100 years, 
meant that the door to the land route to China was suddenly and decisively shut to Europeans. Thus, the continent's merchants were forced to turn towards the sea routes, with Portugal circumnavigating Africa while Spain set sail across the Atlantic, seeking a more direct route to China. Mann writes that the links are so close you can almost feel them touching. Columbus, though in his own words a simple, unlearned sailor, was in Lisbon seeking backing from King Alfonso. He had access to a map, also commissioned by the king, which showed Marco's China crammed with cities. He had a copy of Toscanelli's letter. Indeed, his diary quotes directly from it. In its prologue, he speaks about a prince who was called the Grand Khan, which in Spanish means King of Kings, and notes how many times he and his predecessors had sent to Rome to ask for men learned in our holy faith. So Columbus knew Toscanelli's conclusions, which were based on Marco's book. It was Marco, at one remove, who inspired Columbus with his big idea. British historian Sir Henry Yule sums up Polo's legacy by writing that he was the first traveler to trace a route across the whole longitude of Asia, naming and describing kingdom after kingdom which he had seen with his own eyes. He was the first to see the deserts of Persia, the jade-bearing rivers of Khotan, China in all its wealth and vastness, Burma with its golden pagodas, Laos, Siam, and Japan, Java, the Pearl of Islands, Sumatra with its many kings, the naked savages of Nicobar and Adaman, Selyan, the Isle of Gems, India, once a fabled dreamland, now a real country of virtuous Brahmins, ascetics, diamonds, and Syrian heat, Ethiopia with its secluded Christians, Zanzibar and Madagascar, and the Arctic world of dog sleds, white bears, and reindeer riders. It was a life full of adventure, beholding more of the earth's beauty than any man before him, and far more than most men and women after. Ibn Battua is likely the only other man in our planet's history to have seen as much as Marco Polo. So why does the Venetian have a pool game, while most Westerners don't even know the Muslim's name? Batua's work was unfortunately only published centuries after his death. Although he accurately described the great kingdoms of Africa, the Middle East, India, and Southeast Asia, those foreign worlds had long since been described by other travelers. By the time of his life work's publication, the lands described were no longer exotic. While we pick apart Marco Polo's work, the Venetian was the one handing out copies of his own book. At the time, there was no one in Europe who could credibly claim that they had witnessed half of the things that he had experienced. He gave his land a sneak peek of what's to come, as soon paper money, eyeglasses, coal, and gunpowder would soon follow him from the Far East to permanently alter their world. He began as a wide-eyed boy who only wrote about what interested him, which happened to be women and assassins, which consequently still happened to be the same interests among teenage boys in the 21st century. 
It is only because of him that we know of the weirdest beauty contest in history, one in which Kublai Khan insisted was held every other year. 400 to 500 women entered into the competition and were run through the gambit of invasive tests, including a breath test, as well as measurements of their eyebrows, nose, chests, and hips. In what perhaps ought to be added to the Miss Universe pageant, the contestants were subjected to tests to determine how loudly they snored. Forty winners emerged to join the Khan's concubines, while the runners-up were married off to court officials or offered a job working within the royal palace. But while he began the journey as a wide-eyed lost boy, Marco Polo ended up as one of the great ambassadors for a cosmopolitan world, one in which foreign lands are connected together through their differences, rather than divided by them. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.